Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics, and we'll always do so from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's guest will be heard once again across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us today will be Glenn Stanton. He's Director of Global Family Formation Studies at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. He's going to help us understand what modern culture means by sex, gender, and sexual orientation, and give us insight into how to respond in love to people who hold both different beliefs about this concept than we do. You know, Tom, I'm thinking uh, at the very onset of this show, there's no way you and I managed to not come off sounding like a bunch of old guys here. If two is a bunch, that's it. But the rest of the old guys thing is right. Because uh, when I went to medical school, I purchased in August of 1985, the 24th edition of Stedman's Illustrated Medical Dictionary that was published in 1982. And it had the following definitions in it. Number one, the definition of sex. The character or quality that distinguishes between male and female is expressed in the nature of the sex chromosomes, the gonads, and the accessory genital organs as contrasted with gender role. Sounds pretty simple. Yeah, that should be relatively straightforward, even on a multiple choice test in school. You think we ought to be able to get that one. And then the next definition is even shorter, and that's gender. The anatomical sex of an individual. Now, I always thought that gender was one of the main reasons Americans didn't know more than one language, because these other languages have these you know, at least four different genders for nouns. It's like, really? They can't just use a, an, and the? They need le, and la, and el, and il, and who knows what else? What? But, but no, gender, just the anatomical sex of an individual. When a baby is born, you nail it, it, right? Yeah, it's a 50-50. But, you know, it's interesting when we think about the beautiful romantic languages um, that either uh, a noun is either masculine or feminine, which is about all I remember from my college French study. Um, <laughs> how would we ever speak in a way that so many are suggesting that we should speak? Uh, I listened to Jordan Peterson talking about mandated speech and mandated use of pronouns uh, and the great country to the north of us in Canada, how could one speak French properly without knowing whether a noun was masculine or feminine? Yes, absolutely. But we didn't grow up that way. Now, continuing then, in that great Stedman's Dictionary, sexuality, that yes. one's not really that common. Maybe we blushed way back then when we heard the word, um, but it's not, that, it's not that complex. The sum of a person's sexual behaviors and tendencies and the strength of sexual tendencies, the quality of having sexual functions are implications. Not really that complex, is it? Not compared to what it is today and what Glenn's going to help us understand. And I met Glenn... Uh, in October of uh, 2020, I was uh, an envoy of the Catholic Medical Association speaking to focus on the family's physician resource council about ways that we in the CMA could collaborate with them. And here I met this gold mine of, of information, but not only information, but ways to talk about it that will build relationships instead of break them down. So I hope our audience just greatly enjoys what Glenn has to offer us not only how to understand these topics the way some of our culture does, but how to, to talk to and love people who hold those ideas. And then how do we talk uh, and think about these issues within the context of being faithful Christians uh, with a biblical approach to our lives, to our speech, to the way that we conduct ourselves, while at the same time always remembering that we're, we're in no way casting a negative light on those who maybe struggling with their identity, maybe struggling with uh, what you and I would call same-sex attraction. Um, those are real people with real problems that need real compassion and love. At the same time, these problems that we're going to elucidate are very real ones, and we need to remember both sides of that coin, don't we? We do, and I'm sure Glenn will help us do that. But before going on to the interview, we have our medical trivia question of the day. Category for this question is the Y chromosome, which is probably what our wives are asking often about us males. Why the Y? Well, and, and other Y questions. So from the National Genome Research Institute, 
The X chromosome has about 900 genes that code for the formation of about 900 proteins. How many genes does the smaller Y chromosome possess? You're going to have to hang around till the end of the show to get the answer on Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast, the Catholic Medical Association, coming to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. We'll be back after the break with our guest, Glenn Stanton. We're back with our special guest today, Glenn Stanton, who's going to help us understand what many in society believe about sexuality and and gender and how we as Catholics can respond both to the ideas and to the people. Glenn is the Director of Global Family Formation Studies that focus on the family. He has a bachelor's degree in philosophy, communication, arts, and religion, and a master's degree in philosophy, history, and religion from the University of West Florida. He debates and lectures extensively on issues of gender, sexuality, marriage, and parenting at universities and churches around the world, including universities that are not friendly to his ideas. He served in the George W. Bush administration for many years as a consultant on fatherhood involvement in the Head Start program. He's the author of nine books and a senior contributor at the Federalist blog. His latest book, The Myth of the Dying Church, How Christianity is Actually Thriving in America and the World. And his book before that was Loving My LGBT Neighbor, Being Friends in Grace and Truth. And he explores in that book how Christians should interact with gay or lesbian neighbors in a Christ-honoring way. Glenn, welcome to Dr. Doctor. It is good to be with you guys. Thank you. Well, coming to us from Colorado Springs, working at Focus on the Family, which many people might think of as an evangelical Christian organization. You, however, happen to be a Catholic and I guess a convert in your adult life. And I was wondering, do you have any anecdote or story you'd like to share about, you know, what particularly attracted you to the Catholic faith? Yeah, well, thank you very much. And yeah, I am. I'm I'm actually a revert, but I consider myself a convert. I grew up Catholic, but I, my experience was such that I didn't really have anything to convert back to. I, I really <laughs> discovered yes. the Catholic Church. And I did it through Pope John Paul II, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and my work that I was doing at Focus on the Family on um, marriage and family and things like that, but also as primarily as a philosopher. Ah. It's yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was... was intrigued by the notion of embodiment and Gnosticism. Yes. And it's interesting that even in evangelicalism and in Catholicism in many ways, we really are thoroughgoing Gnostics. Um, this <laughs> division between, you know, the spirit and the flesh and this is holy over here and that's bad over there. And so studying that really got me into um, really, the deep, heavy philosophy, um, the personalism of Pope St. John um, Paul II. Yes. And it was interesting because when I became Catholic, first of all, my boss, the president of Focus on the Family, Jim Daly, I mean, I told him we were on a trip together. We were traveling. And I go, hey, now I need to tell you, I, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm entering the Catholic Church um, is that going to be a problem for focus? And he just looked at me real slyly and just <laughs> joked and said, um, you still love Jesus, don't you? Um, and, you know, that's all he wanted to know. But the funny thing about it was I really got sort of three different kinds of responses from my fellow employees at Focus. The first one was, what do you mean becoming Catholic? We thought you were Catholic all the time because – Thomas, because icons in my office and always talking about John Paul and, you know, (laughs) Catholic theology. So they're like, gosh, we always thought you were. And then you had the other extreme of like, and this was only just a few, a small handful of people. They were like, well, you might as well just become Mormon or something. You know I mean? Like, Catholic was just so way out there. Yes, we are. You had the largest group in the middle, and this was the most interesting group where for evangelicals, they were like, okay, we know Catholics are pretty sketchy theologically, but Glenn, (laughs) you seem to be pretty squared away, so help us figure that out. 
Oh, good. And so I went to a lot of lunches with people at their invitation to like just explain that. And so it was a really, really good process. But the reception has been very good. And we have a number of, of very, very good um, Catholics at, at Focus. And we're out of the closet and <laughs> we can be who we want to be. We well, can't well, talk about like, Mary as much. And extending that then, could you explain to our listeners on EWTN who may not know much about Focus on the Family, what that's all about? Yeah, Focus on the Family is a just a great communications radio magazine print organization. We have radio shows, we have videos, we do magazines, we do books, we have all kinds of websites and blogs and things like that. And we're advocates for the family, staunch, staunch advocates for life. Um, We stand for marriage, we stand for parenting, um, those sorts of things. We were founded by Dr. James Dobson back in the 70s. I've been here since 93 here in Colorado Springs working for Focus. And so, um, I mean, it's interesting. We have, I mean, you know, Focus and Catholics are, are right together on nearly everything. That is wonderful. And uh, we're going to explore some of that uh, even more in the show. But right now, let's go back in the beginning segment of the show. I just went through some definitions from my medical school dictionary on sex, gender, and sexuality. And I'm curious, Glenn, in the last 20 to 30 years, have those definitions changed? And if so, how? Oh, my goodness. I mean, not only have they changed and... You know, most of our, you know, perhaps very liberal kids would go, oh, yes, of course, sex and gender are two different things. It used to be a grammatical thing, right. you know, right. we would, would separate sex and gender. Um, what's your sex? You're a boy or a girl or, you know what, don't have sex in public. And, you know, that, that kind of thing, the act as opposed to the biological nature of an individual. But now it has um, taken on a different meaning. And many people assume because of some scientific or medical development, we now think of, well, sex is this and gender is this. I hear it all the time on college campuses, and it's interesting because students will say it in such a way that, well, Mr. Stanton, you seem very educated, but you seem to conflate sex and gender. And they'll say, <laughs> sex is what is between your legs, and gender is what is between your, your ears. As if, you know, this is some new scientific development, and like sophisticated people now understand this. You know what? That difference of sex and gender is rooted merely in in ideology, gender theory ideology. It is rooted in the assumption or the belief of reality or a different belief of reality rather than in any kind of objectivity. No, do not be bullied into saying, well, sex and gender are different things. Sex and gender are the same thing. There's sex and gender, male and female, and then there is sex, the sex act of reprocreation and, and things like that. And you no, know, Glenn, um, we've been checking we've been checking in with a medical student uh, the last several years as he's traversed his way through medical school. And at a Catholic medical school, he relayed an experience to us where the anatomy instructor explained to the class that in that class they would not be talking about these matters because they were all just, they had just been made up. This idea that, that we can assign uh, sex or gender based on um, a set of anatomical structures, that was just an outdated way of thinking. And this was going to be an enlightened anatomy class, and they wouldn't fall victim uh, to those mistakes. <laughs> and of course, this is at a Catholic medical school. And, you know, Tom and I had to pick ourselves up off the, you know, off the station floor. But, but I think we've all seen in various examples exactly what you've said, this idea that there's been some epiphany that the old guys missed out on, that the stuff that you learned about sex is not correct. Yeah, and it's remarkable. And the irony there is exactly as you said it, Christopher, is they'll say, well, this idea that there's male and female is just made up. It's a cultural construct. (laughs) Not understanding that this idea that there are lots of different genders, that is an ideological construct that they are actually literally making up 
as they go. And they contradict themselves constantly. I mean, I love this, this idea of, well, male and female are just cultural constructs. They're created by the <laughs> culture that you live in, where if your anthropology teacher takes you on a field trip anywhere in the world, <laughs> guess what? There's only two models of humanity that you're only ever going to encounter. And they're the same everywhere, male and female. And there's differences in dress and roles and behavior and things like that. But we can always tell, or no student ever has, like, okay, professor, who are the men, who are the women here? And who is that <laughs> other gender there? I mean, like, no, it is, it is so rooted in nature and history and experience that we just have to reject this idea that, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a fiction that these people live by. So, Glenn, well, let's go to one of these fictions that you taught me in October when I was in Colorado Springs is changing. And that's when you take the word orientation and put it after sexual. When I looked up orientation in my medical school dictionary, it said one of two things. It's either where I am with regard to place and time or where an atom is located within a molecule. Nothing else. Where did this concept of sexual orientation come from and what various meanings has it had up to present? Well, it's interesting and I love the way you set that up because if I were to speak on a college campus today, I would say, you know, playing a role. As we know, sexual orientation is a very important part of who we are as human beings. And you know, I'd probably get a standing ovation because of all the different sexual orientations. But this is an incredibly new construct that, um, I mean, basically in the old days, it used to be called proclivity, you know? That, yeah, we've, we've all got our own thing. But in terms of sexual orientation that I'm either gay, straight, bi, I mean, that's even, is, is bisexuality an orientation? That's a big debated thing. So this thing that we talk about and we believe is just absolutely fixed, and we'll talk about it a little bit. I mean, the Supreme Court of the United States has been making major decisions based on this understanding of sexual orientation that has no real definition or medical or objective um, understanding to it whatsoever. And that's very, very concerning. Well, Glenn, how did how did we get here? Was there a was there a landmark study where a new gene was discovered, or did it did it come from the the labs at Pfizer? Uh, it was, uh, where, we don't did, mean to disparage we, Pfizer, right? Right. How did we get researchers. here? Yeah. No, it's it it was dreamt up out of a philosophy about how a small group of people, and these are people in the women's studies and gender studies departments on some small college campuses, it's what they developed about how they would life, like for life to actually be. When, when we say that, well, we know what sexual orientation is and we know that gender is different than sexuality, there is, just as you laid it out, there is no petri dish experimentation discovery that any scientist discovered at a point in time and said, Eureka, now we have to change our philosophy of what this is. This is all rooted in pure ideology. Now guys, we talked a little bit earlier about speaking on college campuses and one of the lines that I developed speaking on college campuses Go to any secular campus, and I say that the body of knowledge on this campus between the science departments and the religion departments is tighter and more corresponding than the body of knowledge between the science departments and the gender studies department. <laughs> and the first time that I ever said that, I expected the place to explode and to have to defend myself. It has never been challenged or questioned once because they know it. They wow. know that they're making this stuff up based on an assumption about how they would like for humanity and life to actually be rather than the way that it actually is. 
Wow. So, so Glenn, a lot of our listeners paid attention to recent Supreme Court hearings, and they heard a lot about cases. And one of them is a really big case from 2015 of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, of Obergfell. We heard that referenced a lot uh, yes. during uh, the Justice Comey Barrett hearings. And that legally normalized this so-called same-sex marriage that it includes a, a statement saying that marriage is important for everyone. This is true for all persons, whatever their sexual orientation. What did the justices mean when they said sexual <laughs> orientation? Because I'm thinking justices, they make their living with words. So they would pick words very, very carefully. <laughs> what did they mean when they said that? See, I love the way that you set that up, Christopher, because yes, these are Supreme Court justices. I mean, in terms of they do not work in science, but if there was a discipline that is as precise other than accounting, perhaps, <laughs> as science, it is law. And words matter. Claims matter. What you say matters and doesn't matter. Things mm. like that. And they said exactly what you said. I mean, Kennedy, Justice Kennedy said that, that everybody, marriage matters to everybody, regardless of their sexual orientation. As if, I mean, what does that mean? But the courts never define that term. Mm. And I would want to ask if I could put any of these justices on the bench to say, when you say sexual orientation, what do you mean? Is, you know, and they'll say, of course, well, I mean, homosexuality and heterosexuality. Well, bisexuality, uh, you know, other types of sexual, I mean, they, they use these words so carelessly and, 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 loosely that they never even ask themselves, do we need to define what this is and is not? And, and this happened again, didn't it? That the courts did. So just this year, the Supreme Court did it again in the Bostock case about so-called transgender rights. They said, uh, you know, that uh, they admitted that sexual orientation and gender identity are not in the Title 12 protected list yet they added it to the list, but they didn't define it once again, did they? They didn't. They didn't. They said that, yes, in, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, sex is a protected category that you cannot be discriminated against at work. And the case was brought to the court in Bostick, um, which was, as you said, decided this summer. And stunningly, Justice Gorsuch, who was appointed by President Trump, Trump yes. he said, well, yeah, I mean, sexuality, well, gosh, sexual orientation, sexual preference, sexual identity. Um, yeah, they're all the same thing. And so, yes, the people who passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act did intend to include gender identity, sexual identity, and sexual orientation in that law. But here's the thing. It was Alito, who is Scalia's protege. Oh, yes. He was the one that brought up in his razor-sharp yes. dissent, you guys are using these words, but you never try to even explain what you mean or don't mean by them. And it was just absolutely stunning. They just act as, well, we all know what sexual orientation is and is not but they didn't ever define it. And that's what you do in law. That's what you do in legality is you're very careful with your terms. And you know, recently I was reading the decision, I believe it was in Seattle, of the, of the municipality that had decided to de-genderize, if that's a word, all of their language. Yes. And, and the justification for it was to be inclusive or more inclusive. And I think at first, listen, you might think, well, that seems noble, doesn't it? We wouldn't want to be exclusive in our language. But yet, to your point, it's a made-up language. Um, and if your intent is not to be exclusive, but yet to just be uh, categorically and maybe even anatomically correct in your, in your language, that's not intended to be exclusionary or anything intolerant. But yet the culture has owned those terms now that they've decided to not agree with that is in fact to be intolerant. And you are guilty until proven innocent. I'm sure you've experienced that in some of your college campus debates and discussions. Oh my goodness. I mean, absolutely. It's so interesting that last year I was up 
at a campus in Denver and I was at a gender forum and I go to these things to observe and I participate and I let them know who I am and things like that. And I remember we broke into this smaller group and they had us go around and we have to introduce ourselves and give our pronouns. And so I introduced myself. My name's Glenn, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't do my pronouns, of course, because I just don't do that. You know, I'm yeah. not going to play that game. And the guy goes, um, uh, Glenn, do you want to share your pronouns? And I said, yeah, I don't do pronouns. <laughs> and he's like, okay, good. And then it went around to the other side good. of the room. And there was this guy over there kind of sulking. And he goes, I just have to confess that I feel a lot of hostility coming from <laughs> Mr. Stanton, you know, because I didn't do my pronouns. And the crazy thing about it is I, you're supposed to, according to the rules, do your pronouns to protect you. Mm. And if I choose not to be protected, that's my choice. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. <laughs> but Christopher, I love the story that you talked about up in Seattle. And one of the things that happened in Seattle when they said, oh, you know, the city facilities here, the pools and changing rooms and things like that, we're going to open those up to all genders. Oh. Well, there was this really smart Alec 20-something guy who understood fully the implications of what happened. Immediately when the city uh, announced that and it was going to be inclusive and open things up, he is a guy just walks right into the woman's bathroom and he, he, he wasn't trying to be pernicious. He was, he was trying to reveal the problem of what the city was doing. He just walks right into the women's restroom and he just starts to change and the women freak out <laughs> and they go, you know, you can't be in here. And he goes, why can't I? I'm a woman. And they're like, no, you're not a woman. And he <laughs> says, he says, oh, excuse me. Explain to me what a woman is supposed to look like. He understood the absolute <laughs> subjectivity of the issue and he held it right up to the face of the leaders of the city to seattle to say see what kind of mess you've created you think everybody's just going to play by your made-up rules no you have opened an absolute can of worms and i loved what that guy did even though i wouldn't have loved it if my daughters were in there <laughs> and that's a great point to take a break between halves of this interview this is wonderful we'll be back with more here on dr doctor Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And Glenn, just before the break, uh, we were talking words and definitions. Uh, let's move on to another controversial set of words. What kind of disagreements exist in the LGBT community about this term sexual orientation? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, even um, during Justice Amy Coney Barrett's hearings, she got a little lecture because she used the word sexual preference rather than sexual orientation. And the very good senator from Hawaii said, you need to know that's an offensive term and you shouldn't speak that way. And well, actually, Justice Barrett was actually right because <laughs> in contemporary gender theory today, there is a very vibrant discussion and debate among these radical theorists themselves whether sexual orientation even exists as we typically think of it between men and women, things like that. And there is one scholar, um, she's kind of radical, but she um, teaches at a university up in Canada, Queen's University. Her name is um, Professor Sari Van Anders. And she has come up with something that has really taken um, that discipline by storm called sexual configuration theory. And she says sexual configuration theory should replace sexual orientation 
because sexual orientation is a regressive term because it rests on a sort of biological determinism of I am a woman and I'm attracted to women or I am a man and I'm attracted to, to men, that kind of thing. And she's saying that's just so oppressive. And so she published this paper calling for the replacement of the term sexual orientation with sexual configuration theory, that term. And I mean, it. people are taking her very seriously. That is sort of the new wave of where things are going. So when we say, people like us, conservatives, say, well, you know, sexual orientation is really not actually a thing, we would be laughed at because, oh, gosh, how can you be so ridiculous? But actually, the more radical people in the world of gender theory would say, absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. It's not the thing everybody assumes that it is. Well, so how, how should we as Catholics think about these things and how should we interact with people who believe that there are multiple sexual orientations or sexual configurations? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very, very important. We as people of faith, what, how should we live? Um, I mean, first of all, we, we need to read the scriptures. We need to read the catechism and what it says on the issue of homosexuality. Um, there's a leader of the church today that could check out the catechism and see what it says. <laughs> that would serve him well. Um, I won't mention any names there. Um, but we have to know what our faith teaches, okay? And be very strong. In, in my book, Loving My LGBT Neighbor, Being Friends in Grace and Truth, I talk about when we're dealing with the issue, the topic itself, we absolutely have to stand in truth. Uh, John 1.14 talks about Jesus becoming incarnated, coming down and dwelling among us. And in that verse, in that section, it says, he came down from the bosom of the Father full of grace and truth. Now, we think on the issue of homosexuality, should we live more in grace or should we live more in truth? Well, what did Jesus do? He <laughs> was full of both. Oh. And here's the division that I make in my book, Loving My LGBT Neighbor. When you're dealing with the issue, the topic itself, always, always, always stand in uncompromising truth. When you're dealing with the person in front of you, the human person that you're connected eye to eye, always deal with them in absolute uncompromising grace. Deal graciously with the person, but deal uncompromisingly, truthfully with the issue itself. And I find that that always helps me out is, you know what, John, I love you. I want to embrace you. I want to affirm you. But you know what? Here's what God says. And he says the same thing to me that he says to you. And I have to live under those things just like everybody else. And so divide it out and, and always stand on the issue truthfully, but always interact and deal with the person, the other human person that you're connecting with, deal with them. Can with you give grace. an example of, of how you've done that on a campus with people hostile to your ideas? Yes. And, and a lot of it is they're able to watch me take a stand on, on you know, issue X. Um, here is what I believe as a Christian. But then when they see me speaking to another individual, even an individual who is tremendously hostile to me, they, they see me treat him carefully. They see me treat her kindly, graciously. I'm trying to hear what she has to say. I'm trying to understand her. And it's, it's as if you will, and I mean, I, and I learned this not personally, but, but, you know, by observing, if you will, Pope John Paul II, I mean, it, it says, he, people who knew him personally said he was one of the most intense listeners. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, to listen to people, 
to look into their eyes, to try to not just understand their words, but to look into their soul. And people can see that. People can see that you care. So they're able to see, okay, yeah, this guy doesn't agree with me and we disagree, but he's not dismissing me as a person. And when you treat people that way, another thing that I always like to say is, how about if I treat you as Sarah the person, not Sarah the lesbian? How about if you treat me as Glenn the person and not Glenn as the conservative Christian? Could, could we just interact that way? And you can see in their face like, wow, okay, he's just engaging me as a person. That's a revolutionary idea. And, and people can sense that. People can see that. They can read it in you. And I think that's critically important. I think a great example, I focus on the family, uh, is Jim Daly, who we had on our show last year talking about Alive in New York. But he has, a de- has developed a good relationship with a very, oh, what's the word? There's somebody up in Denver who organizes a n- number of people in the, in the gay um, yes. community. Tell us about that because it's just beautiful. Yeah, his name is Ted, and, and he is part of the leadership of one of the largest kind of um, gay activist foundations in the world, one of the most powerful. And when Jim became president of Focus on the Family, he felt as if the Lord were telling him, now, Jim, as president, I want you to call Ted up in Denver, and I want you to reach out to him. And Jim said, you know, Lord, I'll be happy to tomorrow. <laughs> and tomorrow never came. I mean, literally, Jim says, I had that little sticky note with, with, with Ted's phone number. And finally, God said, you know what? I want you to do it this week. Well, Jim went up to Denver to meet him. And, and this guy, Ted, is like nervous, like, oh, my goodness, why is this guy from Focus wanting to meet me? Um, and they, they had a wonderful coffee together. And when Jim was getting ready to leave, he said, Ted, I want to say something to you very seriously. It's the most serious thing that I'm going to say to you. And it's that, Ted, I've spent an hour with you. God has spent his whole life with you. He loves you as deeply and passionately as he loves me. And I am sure of that as I am sure of anything. And, and, and Jim said tears just started to go down Ted's face because, I mean, Jim didn't say, gosh, homosexuality is wonderful and all. He just simply spoke the truth of what God's heart was toward Ted. And Ted had never heard that before. For us as Christians, that's not mind blowing, you know, but he had never heard that from a Christian and it bonded them together in such a significant way. And they have a great relationship to this day. They don't agree. They see things very differently. They fight and they argue, but they know that each other has the other's best interest at heart. And that is, you know what? I'm in your life. I'm committed to you. I I love you. Um, despite who you are, you know, that we just, <laughs> but, um, but I'm committed to you. And, and, and that's a wonderful example to the world that I think we all need to develop. You know, in listening to that, I think about specifically in the Catholic examples of um, the difference between the church's teachings and the brokenness of some of its teachers. Um, and so if, if the church has been um, unloving or maybe lacking in grace towards uh, those with same-sex attraction, for example. It's not because the teachings of the church were wrong. It's right. because we're broken as members, uh, and maybe we didn't present it in the way that you've presented it. But I think our detractors love to commingle those problems. Um, you know what, Christopher, you're absolutely right, and I hear this all the time, and I think it's important for Christians to understand this, is to think, If the other person gets offended, what are they getting offended by? And I hear this all the time. Christians who will say, you know what? I had a neighbor and we would, gay man, we would walk together three mornings a week, early in the morning and exercise. We did that three years. Well, he found out later that I was a Christian or that I worked at some ministry. And he said, this was an actual story that I heard. And if I've heard this once, I've heard it a zillion times. This person 
when their friend who they'd been walking with, you know, three times a week early in the morning to exercise together, they were friends. When this gay man found out that she worked at a large evangelical ministry, he said, I'm sorry, I can't be friends with a bigot. She was smart enough to understand what was happening, that he is the one that cut her off. She was the same woman, the same friend, the same gracious individual, and it broke her heart. Nothing about her changed. It was him who said, actually, he wouldn't admit it, but I can't be friends with somebody who would believe what you believe. She was willing. And so too many times Christians feel bad about that, you know, Um, when like, no, we're not the ones who made up the rules. And we have to ask the question, did I act in an offensive way? Did I act in a rude way? And if you did face up to that, but did I alienate the other person by what I did or did I, did they feel alienated because of my own faith and belief? There's a difference between those two things. And I have alienated a number of people because of what I believe. I hope that I've never alienated anybody by how I acted. And I think that's a very, very important Glenn, idea. that is beautiful. Because once we are persecuted or prosecuted for beliefs, then civil society is at an end. But if we are judged based on actions, that's what we're called to do. I mean, we love with actions. We don't love with beliefs. So I had a question, and this you may have just answered it all, but I'm wondering if there's a little more to it. Oftentimes, some Christians might be fearful of engaging somebody either who identifies as gay or who is uh, sympathetic to those thoughts because they think they're going to be yelled at or hated or harangued. What would you say to people who have those fears and have not yet engaged somebody with different beliefs on that? You know what? That's a great, great question. And I would say, just bring it down to this. That person, whatever their sexuality may be, is a person with a head, two arms, two legs. <laughs> they, you know, they're, see them as a person. And it goes back to what I said earlier. You know what? Let me just see you as Cynthia. Not Cynthia the gay activist, not Cynthia the proto-Marxist. Not Cynthia, you know, the professor at the university. How about just Cynthia? And how about if you just see me as Glenn, you know? And and when you approach it that way and try to set it up that way, you you see your your potentially new friend go, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. Let's just interact that way. And so let's not make it so complex and otherize the person, if you will, like, Oh my goodness, you know, a a gay or lesbian individual. Um, We're all nervous around people that are not like us. Motorcycle gang guy, you know, (laughs) golf person, you know. So we have to understand that. And that nervousness is is just natural. But let's not otherize the same-sex attracted individual and just say, hey, how about if I just interact with you as Frank? Hmm. Do you have advice for us? especially those who spend a lot of time with media where they normalize all of these beliefs and behaviors. How do we keep oneself, you know, as was it James said, from becoming polluted by the world when there's a constant stream of things that are against objective truth? Well, the, you know, that's, that's the long, long struggle of how do we be in the world, but not of the world. Yes. In that way. And I think, you know, we've got to read the newspapers, we've got to pay attention, but we don't have to dive into the deep end of it either. And I think, I think one of the things, and I think this, this goes to your question, but it also addresses some of the stuff earlier, is I think we need to fight for our right not to agree. And I will ask that question all the time of, of the same-sex attracted or gay or lesbian activist. Is there room in your philosophy for me not to agree with your sexuality, but to still love you and care for you as a human being? And when you ask the question that way, you're challenging that assumption that I am my sexuality. 
You know, it's, it's, it, and when I ask people that, they're like, okay, wow, okay, I'm going to have to make a decision there, whether <laughs> I'm going to draw that line or not. And so again, ask them, can I be your friend? Can I love you? Can I affirm you as a person and still not agree with everything about your sexuality? Ask that question. So, I think it's so, so Glenn, very, very this brings up something that my favorite living philosopher has written about and one of the few things that stunned him into silence. Uh, you might be familiar with Peter Kraft. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. So Peter Kraft was talking uh, to a man who identified as uh, gay or homosexual. And the, the person talking to Peter had a problem with Peter saying, well, I love you as a person, but not for your, you know, homosexual actions. And the person said to Peter, well, could I say to you, I love you as a person, but not the part of you that loves Jesus. And Peter then realized that this person had made homosexuality equivalent to a religion mm. and, and didn't think it could be separated from him as a person. How would you respond to that? Well, th that is very, very important because we need to understand about the other person. They have made their sexuality like all of us. I mean, our sexuality is a big, huge part of who we are. Right. And so I, I don't really like to um, separate it out that way in the sense of, can I just separate you from your sexuality? That's not the right way to say it. It's, can I disagree and still love you and affirm you. Now, the question back is, you know what, dude? I would love for you to be my friend, and I can totally agree that if you think I believed that a man 2,000 years ago rose from the grave and was alive the next day, if you think that's crazy, you know what? As a non-believer, I would expect you to think that that's crazy, <laughs> right? So it's, it's this thing of, there is nothing in the world that we expect all of us to agree with everything on, especially like as Catholics. I mean, I will say this constantly. I believe that when I go to the Eucharist, I am literally actually eating the body and blood of Christ. You know what? You, I can understand how you think that's nuts, <laughs> yes. you know? Um, and so can I also think your sexuality is maybe not such a good thing? You know, I mean, it, the fascinating thing is as Christian and non-Christian, that puts us on the same footing. There are things that we Beautiful. believe, we hold, Beautiful. that we just simply cannot expect the other person to, to agree with. Glenn, in our last... What you're describing, Glenn, I think is actual tolerance as opposed to the tolerance that we hear about. Um, well, see, and that's the crazy thing. It's classic liberalism, right? Yes. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. And we try to make a life somewhere in the middle there. Yeah, Glenn, we I, have 20 I, seconds left. Yeah, what resources would you recommend for our listeners on this subject? Um, one of the things that we talked about early on is, is I have an article um, at uh, Public Discourse. You can just Google my name, Glenn Stanton, Public Discourse, and it's the issue of how do we define um, sexual orientation. But I would also encourage people um, to check out my book, um, Loving My LGBT Neighbor, because it really does get into the warp and wolf, if you will, of, of how do you work these issues out, standing for truth, while also loving the other person in real grace. Glenn Stanton, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and it's time now for the answer to our trivia question of a chromosomal nature. Yes, so the X chromosome has 900 genes that make 900 proteins. How many does the little Y chromosome have? It's much smaller. It only has 55 genes. You know, about six to seven percent the amount of genes is the X chromosome. It just doesn't seem fair, does it, Chris? And that's what we contribute to this whole thing called life. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, Chris, what would be your three biggest takeaways from this fascinating interview with Glenn? 
Yeah, you might call it a new feature here on Dr. Doctor, the TTTA, the top three takeaways. Um, <laughs> you know, I think listening, one thing that's clear, and that is definitions have changed, or at least there are many, many who would like to have changed definitions of what once were simple and easy to understand words. And those words matter now. So you need to understand them and use them accordingly. Um, I think, too, um, there is a way, and I love the way Glenn said this, you can stand fully in truth and fully in grace simultaneously. And when dealing with the person, we have to stand fully in grace. When dealing with a topic, we must stand fully in truth. Uh, I really appreciated that. And then finally, I think um, he pointed out that what we believe and what others believe and our actions and their actions do not have to be the same thing. How, I like the way he said, how about I deal with you as Tom and you deal with me as Chris instead of all of the other labels that yes. others want to put on us. That, uh, and then finally, as a bonus, this idea that we absolutely have to fight for our right to disagree. That disagreement is good and noble uh, and we have to never let that be taken away from us. Chris, I love your top three. I hope our listeners do too, who we thank for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. It's brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And when you're there, please be sure to rate and review the show. Otherwise, we don't know if you like it or not. Send us your <laughs> questions. Tell us something you heard on the show that you like. Maybe that even changed your life. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Many support a woman's right to choose, but sadly, few know the consequences of those choices. The Catholic Medical Association supports your right to know. Studies have suggested that women who have had an abortion have difficulty with intimate relationships after the abortion. Women who have had an abortion tend to have shorter relationships with men compared with women who have not had an abortion, and they are more likely to report negative relationships. But there is hope through Project Rachel. To find out more, visit cathmed.org.